Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we're trying to record some shows ahead of time. We're actually recording this Sunday morning on the 25th of uh, September because according to the Weather Service, we are in for quite an event. Yeah, it was really sweet. We were watching the Weather Channel the other day, which we really don't do very often, but impending storm. And uh, you reached over and you grabbed my hand and you looked me in the eye and you said, our first hurricane. It's so romantic. <laughs> it really is. We bought bottled water and candles and everything. Yeah, we uh, went to the store as soon as they declared a state of emergency for next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad we went early because... Wow, it was already getting cleaned out. It was picked over. Yeah. yeah. One thing I did learn after we left Publix, though, was that Publix has recently started offering a fake meat club sandwich. And I really wish... Wish that I had known that yesterday uh-huh. when we were at the store. Well, that's what you took away from our hurricane preparation. Yeah. Well, okay. it sounds yeah. delicious. Yeah. Why is it that whenever there's a storm, uh, people buy bread and milk? I don't know. I think milk's one of the silliest things to stock up on. Bread makes some sense. Sure. But water, that's that's the thing. Yeah. Why why did I see like people pushing carts with like eight gallons of milk in it? I don't know. Were they bathing in it? <laughs> I guess it's important to make sure that you can make your choco milk and your shakes and stuff. I suppose. While yeah. the storm's making its way through. Get your vitamin D. Yeah, everybody needs a little extra D when there's a hurricane. Oh, Um, So anyway, there's a church in Prague, and it has a strange and unusual history. It's a beautiful old church. It's called the Church of St. James the Greater, not G-R-A-T-E-R, like James is preparing cheese. That's not, although blessed are the cheesemakers. That was a really long way to Uh get to a Python reference. I will go the distance. (laughs) So the church was originally built in, in the 13th century. 
for the Franciscans. The original church uh, was destroyed in a fire in 1689. The fire was believed to have been started by people working for Louis XIV of France. Oh, it was intentional? It was an intentional thing. It was rebuilt in the Baroque architectural style, and in the rebuilding, it added an additional 20 altars. The organ that's in the church was first installed in 1702. Holy shit. Pope Paul VI. <laughs> sorry. It's just you were talking about the D, and then you referenced an old organ. And so, <laughs> please go ahead. In 1974, Pope Paul VI granted the church the honorary, honorary title of Minor Basilica. But the church has long been associated with the macabre. Ooh. Strange things have been known to happen there. Some explained, some not. Sometime around 1713, the Black Plague hit Prague, and it devastated the area. The plague ran its course between 1713 and 1715, so for two years, it was just devastating for the area. About 25% of everybody living in Prague died in a two-year period from the Black Plague. People seem to be dropping dead in their tracks everywhere. It's well-documented. Historical, historical documents uh, talk about how people were just terrified by what was happening. Yeah, and because of their lack of understanding of where it comes from mm -hmm. and how to stop it, it's just this scary, mysterious thing that's killing everyone you know and love. It's terrifying. And oftentimes, the majority of the population would attribute it to some sort of a of a curse from God or, or some sort of a plague right. that was put on them for, for doing evil things. And it was about this time that the church was nearing its reconstruction after that fire. A painter named Vaclav Vavernik Reiner was hard at work putting the finishing touches on the main altarpiece. Um, as he was working on the altar, those around him were quickly dying from the Black Plague. Many of the parishioners for the uh, church passed away. Uh, the, the clergy of St. James died. Reiner's own family, his entire family, was decimated by the Black Plague. All of his friends died of the Black Plague. And yet, even though he was totally surrounded by plague victims, he seemed to be immune as he carried on his work. And soon people began to speculate that he didn't get the plague. He was being spared because of the holy work he was doing on the altar. I see. That this was somehow protecting him. His work continued for many months until one day he finally finished. He stepped back to admire his work. He set his paintbrushes down and he noticed telltale welts developing on his body. So the day that he finished his work is the day that, okay. And he died the next day. No. From Black Plague. Wow. The day after he finished his work, he died of the Black Plague. But the weird history of the church goes back even further than that. And there are many reminders of this even today. Now, when you... Today, if you walk into St. James the Greater Church... I would like to. Thank you. Yes. Look up to your right, and there's something strange dangling on a hook from the ceiling. Um, creepy. At first glance, it's somewhat unrecognizable. But if you look closely, you'll see that it's a withered black human arm suspended from a hook. What? Yeah. Now, your first thought might be it's it's maybe some sort of a religious relic, like uh, the arm of a 
saint or something like that. Uh-huh. That would be my first thought. But it's clearly not because religious relics are treated with great reverence. And this is just hanging from a meat hook on the ceiling of the church with its tendons and skin dangling down in the air where the shoulder once was. Nobody knows how long it's been up there, but it's been up there as long as anybody can remember. Huh. It's believed it w- it's been hanging there since uh, the church was rebuilt in, this, in the late 1600s, but nobody knows for sure. They don't know whose arm it is or why it's there, but here's the story that goes with it. Once the church was rebuilt, a man came in in the middle of the night, and he was marveling at the beauty of the church. Gold glinted in the candlelight, as did precious stones that adorned the statue of the Virgin Mary. The legend goes that he climbed up and pried one of the precious stones from the statue Uh, loose. Very the mummy. Yes. Well... Did scarabs come out of the wall? Well, almost. And go into his skin? The statue of the... (laughs) Gross. The statue of the Virgin Mary suddenly moved and grabbed his arm with her hand. Her stone hand. And she kept him there until the monks returned in the morning. It's been said that they tried to free him and could not. They could not loosen the grip that the statue had on this man. So they asked parishioners for assistance. And the church happened to be near the Butcher's Guild. The screams of the thief could be heard for blocks. Amputation in those days, clearly crude, Mm. and there was no anesthesia. So it was bad enough when a doctor did it. But imagine when a group of butchers performed the procedure. Yeah, and he's still like kind of dangling, right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're up high. So there's got to be some sort of scaffolding or something arranged. Some butcher scaffolding. Mm -hmm. I have to insist that they make a movie about it and Brendan Fraser's in it. I love that he's made this huge comeback. He's such a treasure. So once the butchers had finished their bloody and grisly work, the arm had been removed. And as soon as that happened, the statue dropped the limb and returned to her original pose. Mm. The butchers then hung the arm on the ceiling uh, as a warning to people. Don't be stealing shit from the church. And there it stayed. Now, it's a cool story. Uh, Just as cool as the story is uh, the fact that there's a black shriveled human arm hanging from the ceiling of a church and nobody really knows why. I like that they don't really know why, but they're not going to mess with it anyway. No, they're going to leave it there. Yep, got to leave it there. It's part of our history now. About 100 years after this happened, a count named Jan Vaklov Vratislav died of dropsy in Vienna. Dropsy was a term used to describe generalized swelling and it was often accompanied by heart failure. He was to be entombed in the church, and a massive Baroque monument had been commissioned in his honor, and it was just waiting there for him to die, pretty much. It's a huge stone monument. It's still there. His remains were brought back to Prague from Vienna, and the funeral was conducted, and his remains were then placed inside this vast stone Baroque monument. Unfortunately, he was not quite dead yet. Oh, no. Soon after his funeral, the clergy and parishioners started hearing horrible noises coming in from inside the tomb, screams for help. Now, you would think that they would just bust it open and let the guy out, that they would assume that they had buried him prematurely. But no, what they assumed was that his soul couldn't find rest. So they blessed the tomb and then prayed for him for several days. And sure enough, he stopped screaming. Oh, sure. 
Could it have been just the sound of gases being released, which is a common occurrence occurrence during the uh, decomposition stage? Especially if he was puffy already. Yeah, well, he was puffy from the dropsy. Right. Perhaps. However, many decades later, in 1906, during a church renovation, Mm. workers discovered the body of the Count. Somehow he had managed to get out of his coffin and was lying face down and trapped inside this massive stone monument. Oh, jeez. But it's a good thing they prayed for him. Yep. It's amazing to me that they heard noises coming from the tomb and they didn't think, geez, you know, we better crack this open and, and check on this just guy. Just check. No, um, his soul's restless. Let's just pray until it stops making noise. Regardless, now I have to put this on the our ever-growing list of places. For real. That I want to visit. Prague, of course, we've talked about going to Prague. Right, gorgeous. Czech Republic for, I don't know, years and years. Uh, But now I have a destination point in mind specifically. My information came from Atlas Obscura, Wikipedia, and the Smithsonian.com. Another thing I love about Prague is its flag. It's just half yellow, half red. Blam. Done. That's it. Yeah, simple. Not a lot of fucking around. Nope. Primary colors. Goodbye. (laughs) I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial 
money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. It seems that nowadays you can't stop at any traffic light without seeing a person with a sign. In August of 2013, a Pensacola, Florida woman stopped traffic when she stood on the roadside asking for breast implant donations by carrying a sign that read, quote, not homeless, need boobs. Just before we stepped into the studio to record, and when I say studio, I mean the master bedroom, um, we received this, e this email from Crystal. You've not read this yet. Crystal says, I just listened to Box 471, and as soon as Jethro said USS Indianapolis, I got full body goosebumps and chills. I yanked my youngest son from his room to come listen to the story with me in the kitchen while I was baking. It would have been the whole family all called to the kitchen, but we were the only ones there. My grandpa was one of the 317 survivors out of the 1,156 crewmen aboard the USS Indianapolis. Oh my goodness. His full name was Virgil Corbett Wallace, and he lived in Missouri most of his life. He retired in Arkansas and lived to tell me the tale. My family and I live in St. Louis, so as my grandpa reached the later years in life, which was in the 1990s, I was a teenager. My dad, his son, and I would make weekend road trips to visit sometimes. On occasion, he would open up about his experience of being stranded on the open ocean for four days. I cannot imagine how traumatic that must have been. He was a man of a few words, so I did not get a full description to fully comprehend the picture you talked about, Jethro, but I could only imagine the horror. When Grandpa spoke, he mainly focused on the nights. His description of hearing screams coming from nearby in the blackness as one of the crewmen would be randomly picked off by a shark was terrifying. I think the terror of the sharks circling just below him in the water minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day with no way to know who was next must have played on his psyche for decades. He only opened up a few times about it, and each time he would seem like he would just get started telling the story, and he would start to choke up a little bit and get misty-eyed and stop talking, taking a breath and saying, I don't like to talk about that, though, and walk away. Well, For I don't blame him. I knew I couldn't ask too many questions or push him to hear more, but I desperately wanted to understand the full story better, of course. My dad was shocked when he told me about it. He said he never talked about that and that it meant that he must really have trusted me. I believe that as he was getting older, he really didn't want the other 317 survivors' stories to get lost in time. He wanted to pass it on to his family, but wasn't fully capable of talking about it in detail. Of course, PTSD was not understood or even named back then, but I'm sure he lived with horrific nightmares and daymares for his whole life. So I want to thank you for covering this story and bringing light to the experience that these survivors had to a completely new generation of people and on a platform such as this where you now have an incredible outreach. My dad and I have passed on what we know to my kids, 
which is only how much grandpa could bring himself to say. So I don't think they fully comprehend what he went through. I those, don't think anyone can. Those four days or how incredible it was that he survived it all. Mm. The way you told it sure helps us tell his story within the family, too. And simply the fact that you told it at all gives weight to the fact that this wasn't just some small shipwreck. It was a massive, horrific, horrific event. And an impactful lesson can be learned from the days of rescue lost due to negligence. Uh, she goes on for quite a bit here, and it's very touching. I, and I, I am just, we are so honored that you shared that story with us. And I... I have to say, you write beautifully. Yes, yes, you do. Thank you so, so much. Oh, I want to hug Grandpa. <laughs> Ooh. All right, I got to get some socks, and then I'll be right back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. One hundred percent of our listeners surveyed say they listen to podcasts. That's a lot. This is The Box of Oddities. And now Katrina Walls with her warm feet and all here to tell you a story. <laughs> the Pitahui was introduced in 1831 by French naturalist René Lesson. The Pitahui is a bird endemic to New Guinea. And one morning in 1990, while on an expedition in Papua New Guinea, ornithologist Jack Dumbacher caught several songbirds in a mist net. These are like really thin, delicate nets that catch birds for research so that they don't harm them um, and they can be easily untangled. Okay. As he removed a hooded pitahui from the net, his finger was cut and he felt a tingling and then an intense burning. He put his finger in his mouth to ease the pain, and then his tongue started to tingle oh and burn for hours. 
Later, the scientist in him took over, and he took one of the Pitahui feathers that he had collected and cut a snip of it off and put it in his mouth. Yes, the pain returned. Oh, my God. He discovered what locals knew, that this bird had this particular effect. They called the Pitahui a rubbish bird due to its foul odor that it emits and also that it's no good for eating. A rubbish bird. It's like trash fish. <laughs> yes. For fishermen. Exactly. All right. This ornithologist had just discovered the first toxic bird known to science. He sent some of the feathers to chemist John Daly at the National Institute of Health. Later, Daly identified the presence of batrachotoxin called BTX for short, which sounds to me like a boy band. Or a, or a uh, bicycle. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but unlike a boy band, uh, this doesn't have like a catchy tune. And unlike a bicycle, it doesn't have wheels. <laughs> Though most members of boy bands are toxic. Currently, <laughs> only a few birds have been confirmed to be poisonous. And that's not fair to boy bands. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Usually it's those that put together boy bands that are toxic, you know, <laughs> t- to take advantage sure. of Looking at you, Lou young Perlman. Man. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, it's interesting to note that several different lineages of birds have developed a chemical defense system independently from songbirds to large game fowl. Now, three members of the Pitahui genus have been found to be poisonous. But the time between the discovery of the bird and the discovery of its toxicity uh, of our city, of our city... Sorry, Um, is really interesting because it shows how long it takes to determine that these birds are toxic. It was like 160 years between its discovery and discovering that it was toxic. So anyway, the toxins of the birds of New Guinea that have been found in the three species are also found in poison dart frogs in Western Colombia. And it's been discovered that the Patui get their BTX from the small beetles that they feed on. And it's the same insect that gives some poison dart frogs their toxicity. So it's not something that is natural to them. It's because of the diet. Yeah, it's kind of like a flamingo. You know, they're not born pink. They get pink because of the shrampies. Shrampies. Now, we're scootling along to the red warbler who spends its time in the Mexican highlands. (laughs) And the way I just said that makes me feel like it's got a cottage there. (laughs) It winters in the Mexican highlands, but it doesn't. It lives there. In the 16th century, a friar reported that a red bird matching the description of the red warbler was regarded as inedible by the Aztecs. So the Aztecs knew not to fuck around with this bird. And scientific evidence confirms that the red warbler is one of the most toxic birds. Really? Due to the presence not of BTX, but of neurotoxic alkaloids. That sounds even worse. It's terrible. It's no good for your bod. And it's interesting to note how, yes, these birds get their toxins from the same sources, the things that they eat, but they're different types of toxins from different sources. So as I said, the Pitahui, Chakabaka BTX, Mm -hmm. this guy, neurotoxic alkaloids. The blue-capped Ifrita is a small insectivorous bird with blue, black, and yellow feathers. Beautiful plumage. It's the third Python reference this episode, by the way. 
And like the Pitahui, they've got the boy band talks and BTX. Researchers also believe that these birds use their underbellies that are high in the toxin to rub on their eggs to repel potential predators. So the toxins not only work for their own protection for lice and insects and such, but also for other predators who might be trying to nom on their babies. Wow. Nature's amazing. Sure is. The bronze wing pigeon lives in southwest Australia. Now, I'm sure you assumed that probably we'd get into some Australian birds because... You're infatuated with birds no, and Australia? No, I just mean that Australian things are always trying to kill you. Um, <laughs> the bronze wing pigeon is toxic due to high levels of fluorine. And like many animals in its habitat... It feasts on a plant called gastrolobium, and though it's an important part of the diet for these birds, the plant has a chemical that's fatal to anyone else. It's called the poison fluoracetate, and it acts as an inhibitor for cellular res respiration, causing a range of responses from intense stomach pain to death. Wow. I have never heard of a bird that can give you searing abdominal cramps. Let alone kill you. You accidentally ate some bison a while back, and I was pretty sure you were going to suffer from some severe abdominal cramps. Yeah. But you did okay. I did. My lower intestines passed the test. <laughs> and passed the... Yeah. Anyway... The hulapo is known for its beautiful plumage once again and its disgusting smelling nest. These birds have evolved and are adapted to produce a liquid using uh, glands on their undersides that are highly concentrated with dimethyl sulfide. Oh my God. And that offers a chemical defense against predators, and they just stuff it full in their nest. They're basically wallpapering their nest with poison. As I said, they're very pretty. <laughs> but that's something important to note, too, is very often the birds that are toxic are very pretty, and that's part of their defense mechanism. They're saying, hey, hey. Don't eat me. It's like the poison dart frogs. Beautiful, brightly colored frogs that are like, I'm not good for eating. It's like that whole trypophobia thing that I have. Yep. The beetles yep. that some of these birds eat are exactly the patterns that would freak you out. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't show you. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Nor do we need to post them no. on the Freaks Please group. Please don't. Or large leeches. Thank you ever again. <laughs> Never. It is odd how we will mention something that freaks us out and somebody will feel it necessary to post it on the Freaks group. Stop it. <laughs> Honest I, I know goodness. you're doing it with love. Right. But Please. Oh, oh, you know what really freaks me out? Receiving large amounts of money and snacks in the mail. Oh, don't do it. <laughs> nice mm. try. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> the common quail. Now, the common quail is considered to be an old world migratory bird, and it's believed that these birds have a neurotoxic chemical quinine, and they get it after consuming hemlock seeds during their flight oh. from north to south. But they're only toxic during that migratory pattern. During that time. If they're going south to north, not not poisonous. Wow. Yeah. Is it carrying a coconut? <laughs> and it's also the case with the partridge of North America. Just regular old partridge. Mm -hmm. You've seen them. I've been chased by one. 
these wait, wait. birds. You, you were chased by a partridge? Yes. Well, he. The, so I assume that there was a nest nearby because mm-hmm. I was skulking. Yeah. And I mean, the bird did the right thing and saying, back off and back the fuck up before I bust this track up. Did you it, know what did I'm saying? Did it chase you down the road? It did. Oh, yep. my God. Was it clucking and squawking? It was. It oh was a God. clucking and a squawking. That's amazing. <laughs> but uh, these guys draw their toxic chemical coniferal benzoate from consuming the quaking aspen flower buds, which are only available to the birds during certain seasons. So current hunting regulations mean that you really never see partridge poisoning because the grouse can't be shot in the winter or the spring, which is when they would be nomming on these poisonous nibbles. I was never a hunter. And I was probably the only kid who grew up in northern Maine uh, that was not. Uh, but I, my entire family did. And I remember going to eat at my grandparents' house. And they had partridge stew mm. and uh, spitting out uh, buckshot pellets. Oh, that's not... That's not nice. Yeah, right right in the stew. Isn't that something you're supposed to address while... What's the word for... Cleaning? Yeah. Dressing? Yeah, yeah, well, I would think so, but apparently um, there were so many of them that uh, they missed a few. Okay. Your family's just like, meh, seasoning. Yeah, it adds to the whole mouthfeel <laughs> of the dish. Some Australian shrike thrushes have been found to carry toxin, but not all. And that's one of the really interesting things about the toxicity of these birds is how they become toxic. Because it depends on their diet, their toxicity levels can vary depending on the time of year, like we talked about, and the food available to them, or their age. Some birds won't start eating the toxic stuff until later in life, Mm -hmm. or they don't get enough of the toxic stuff until later in life. The last bird that we're going to talk about is the spur-winged goose. Now, this bird is a little different because the other birds that we've talked about were pretty chill, and they had the look to say, don't mess with me, and they really mind their own business. Um, But this bird is about 20 pounds and is highly aggressive. Oh, my God. Each goose has a sharp spur on the end of their wrists that they will use against people or whatever they see as being a threat. 20 pounds, that is almost as much as Howard weighs. Yeah. Holy crap. (laughs) And he was just chided at the veterinary office for being too chonky. He's a chonky boy. Yeah, a little bit. Apparently, I said something a few episodes ago that implied that Howard was no longer with us. I don't know what I said, and I'm so sorry about it, but I did have to update some people on the old internet that he was, in fact, still with us, and he's doing just fine. I'm so sorry. Living his best life. I don't know what I said. Most of the weight he gained when uh, our friend was house-sitting when we were away, Mm -hmm. and uh, you made a comment to him saying, it seems like Howard maybe gained a little bit of weight, and and what was it he said? He said, I don't think I fed him too much. I just fed him what my heart told me. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, there's a scoop in there. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I find that very endearing. That is endearing. But he is officially on a diet now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Dangerous bird. The goose eats the poisonous blister beetle, and that's how he becomes toxic. The threat really is that he will come after you. Yeah. 
It'll slit you open and then poison you on top of it. That's not a friendly goose. No, though I don't know many geese that are. That's true. We had one when I was a young person. Did it chase you down the road? He didn't chase me, but he did chase anyone that I invited to the house. Who would win in a race, a partridge or that goose? Oh, that goose. Okay. That goose meant business. Covered some ground. And he'd do that thing where he'd put his head way down close to the ground and run at you that way. And it was... It was very intimidating. Sure, yeah. Data obtained from studies reveals that toxicity in birds is not ancestral. Instead, it is a result of evolution, and it ends up working for them. And it's really cool that these birds, like the pitahui, have a specific protein that soaks up the toxin within their own body. So they emit it, but they are not affected by it, Hmm. which is absolutely incredible. And it's also something that scientists are studying for many reasons, including creating antitoxins, as you can imagine, but also fighting cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, then. So, birds, once again, proving themselves to be absolutely incredible. I'm not obsessed. I'm just (laughs) observant. Uh Yeah. I think it's interesting that most of those birds that you talked about became toxic after consuming uh, berries and beetles Mm -hmm. and things like that. Whereas most of the people I know that are toxic have become that way by consuming the wrong websites and Facebook pages. (laughs) Very nice. Social commentary. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a subtext (laughs) for you there. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap this up because I have uh, about 20 other episodes to get ready to do. (laughs) Before the hurricane hits. Yeah. Yeah. Did you cite your sources? Oh, no, I didn't. Thank you. I got most of my information from BioExplorer, Wikipedia, obviously, Australian Geographic, Bird Eden, and Earth.com. So we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Alexa notifications. One new notification from Amazon Shopping. Kitchen knife set has arrived. <gasps> new Alexa. knives, new knives, new knives. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. 
And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.